Hi, and welcome. Today we talk with Kenneth McElroy. He's the co-founder and director of the Caithness Brach Project. You might not have heard of it, but I guarantee you'll want to check out their website. In this podcast, I talk to scholars, amateurs, academics, students, and so many more. It's so great to hear their passion for the topic. And you might have noticed that not all episodes here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now we're going into some Scottish history, eh? Today I'm talking with Kenneth from the Caithness Brach Project, and it's so funny how we got in touch through Twitter. I've been following the page for a while, and he was worried that people wouldn't know what a brach was. So thankfully, he agreed to come on the podcast and help us understand a little bit what a brach is. So thank you for being here, Kenneth. I really appreciate it. That's not a problem at all, Rosie. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm really excited. So today, well, I mentioned a little bit, but what did you want to talk about today? What's your topic? Well, today I'm going to be talking about brochs mainly, um, as well as an archaeological charity which I co-founded in 2013 called the Caithness Broch Project, which is attempting to rebuild one of these structures. Excellent. Okay. I guess we can start right at the beginning. So we can start with the time period. What time period are we looking at when we talk about brochs? Okay, so we are looking at the Iron Age and that's kind of specifically the, the British Iron Age, if you like, because there's different Iron Ages across Europe and indeed across the world. But the kind of Iron Age for, for Scotland and for the UK started sometime um, around kind of 800 BC. But brochs were built from around about 400 BC to about 200 AD. That's when they stopped kind of being being used. I think they're actually, they stopped being built about 100 AD, actually. And the difficulty with kind of understanding brochs is that it depends on what your version of a broch is because there are very similar structures and there's structures which are broch-like and you get structures which are very definitely a broch but some structures are not quite a broch so it's sometimes difficult to delineate what's a broch and what isn't and when kind of this kind of tradition of building brochs began but generally we're talking 400 BC to about 100 AD, 200 AD so that's about 2000 years ago. Yes. And what was happening in sort of the timeline of history in that time in Scotland? You know, what was going on that would create these structures? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I don't think archaeology has quite answered it yet because there are, there are various theories as to what brochs were used for and why they were built. The best example of a broch can be found on Shetland and it's called Musa. So if anyone wants to see what a broch looks like, then you know, they can they can go and look at it. And what it is essentially is a very impressive dry stone tower, um, which often, or it could reach up to the height of, you know, over 40 feet high. And um, that's just the structure. On top of that, you'd maybe have a 20 foot roof as well, possibly if they were roofed. So when you look at a broch, you would immediately think that these are very impressive, very foreboding, perhaps, structures on the landscape. Ones that certainly kind of would signal some kind of power or perhaps a defensive reason. So there's maybe strategic reasoning behind the construction of brochs, 
Um, but there could be kind of a wider societal reason for the construction as well. It could essentially just be kind of statements of power. Or the other thing is you might want to consider the kind of worsening kind of climate at the time, which meant that, you know, farming was becoming more difficult. People are farming less on the uplands of Scotland and they're moving down the valleys. And so perhaps they're consolidating resources, consolidating power. This is also a time when you see hill forts, enclosed settlements, duns. Duns are quite similar to brochs in construction. You see these dotted all around the landscape of Scotland. And it's, it's almost as a kind of crystallisation of tribes, of societies, kind of a pre-kingdom era where people are consolidating their power. But there are myriad theories into why uh, these structures were being built at the time. Were there any particular landscapes where they tended to be built? Well, essentially, they're found largely across the north and west of Scotland, and in particular in Caithness. You'll also find many in, say, the Western Isles, uh, Sutherland, Orkney, Shetland. You'll find a handful in Angus, which is towards the south of um, Scotland, and you'll find, uh, you know, seven or eight in the kind of south of Scotland as well. So you'll find, I think, at least two down in the borders, Eden's Hall being one of them. Um, These are quite notable and later constructions as well. I think what I've found with brocks is that they're always near a source of water. So you'll always find them kind of near rivers, near burns, as we might call them, kind of small streams. But they, they are dotted across the landscape. So they are found everywhere, with, so ranging from kind of inland kind of locations to um, very iconic kind of hilltop locations as well. So they are found everywhere. And certainly when you come to Caithness, wherever you can throw a stone, it's likely to land on a brock. There are over, well, around about 200 brocks in Caithness alone. Um, So that's quite a significant number to find in one county. That's incredible. And how big of a landscape is Caithness, like size-wise? How how many kilometres or miles are we talking about? Um, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. I know that um, it's big. And maybe not on Canadian standards, it's probably not that big. I think it's one and a half thousand kind of square kilometres, something like that. So it's not an insignificant size, and it's certainly one of the kind of larger regions in Scotland. Yes, I mean, you said a stone's throw. You're not kidding then if there's 200 brocks in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically any kind of hill that you might see is possibly a brock. Caithness is notoriously flat. It's like kind of the lowlands beyond the highlands. And so a lot of these bumps in the grit and kind of almost like tors, well, it may be a, maybe a brock. Mm-hmm. And how did we discover brochs? Like, how did we understand that they're a different type of archaeology? Um, I'm not sure who did the first excavation of a brock. I know that actually, interestingly enough, brochs are kind of one of these great levelers in terms of kind of gender, because one of the a really early archaeologists in Scotland's history is, is Christine McLagan who actually excavated or discovered a brock uh, near Stirling. Uh, that was sometime in the late 19th century, by which point there was a kind of flourishing of archaeology. Back then it was kind of known as, or became known as antiquarianism. Largely kind of well-educated, more affluent people uh, just digging up remains that were in sometimes in their estate or, or nearby. Um, and these were often enacted by more well-to-do members of society, uh, school teachers, reverends, for example. They would be often lead excavation. So it wasn't quite excavation as we now know it, which is a kind of meticulous scientific process. Back then it was more Indiana Jones style looking for gold and bones and interesting things. But certainly in Caithness, one of the earliest proponents of excavation was Alexander Henry Rind, who excavated Kettleburn Brock, I believe it is, 
I think it was the 1870s, I want to say. Um, and he became really notable um, in his excavation of Egyptian sites as well. So his, he was trained in Caithness and then transferred his skills to Egypt. There, on top of that, there is a quite a notable Broch excavator, if you can call it that, by the name of Francis Tress Barry, who, again, was one of these well-to-do, um, very wealthy landowners in Caithness. He'd made his riches off things like that. And he was actually, he was an MP at one point too. But he had land in Caithness. He owned Keith Castle and the kind of environs, if you like. He led around about 14 excavations in 14 years of Brock sites. And that's a mind-blowing number if you are an archaeologist, because to give another example, Martin Carruthers of the UHI has been excavating one broch for 10 years. So again, Tress Barry was not quite excavating in the manner as we know it. It was much more clandestine. But he came from a, a kind of background of mining. So he was, you know, he was going for it when he was excavating. So there is a historic tradition of excavating brochs in Scotland where you can find them. Um, and it's something that's been ongoing for nearly 150 years. Um, it was also originally thought that brochs were, were Viking in origin. They also became to be known as Picts' houses. Now, the Picts were a conglomeration of people in Scotland who were, could be found across the area. And that is kind of from a much later date. That's We're talking about maybe 400 AD onwards to about 1000 AD. That's when we might refer to the Pictish peoples of Scotland. So these are actually, they're about... You know, they're about a thousand years out of date, but there's been several advancements, several, you know, archaeologists have been responsible for excellent excavations of, of rocks. Charles Thomas, Horace Fairhurst, Andy Heald, for example, of AOC Archaeology. Brocks have long held a deep fascination and interest for archaeologists for the best part of 150 years. Yes, absolutely. It's quite amazing, actually, that, you know, we're still learning about them. That's really incredible. There is, there is a lot to be learned about brochs and they're not going to give up their secrets so easily, I'm afraid. But that's part of the fun of archaeology, I think. Mm -hmm. I guess we can talk about maybe what a typical, I know that in archaeology it's difficult to talk about typical things, but you know what would be a typical structure that we're looking at? Well, my co-founder, Ian McLean, um, whom we founded the project back in 2013, he, he likes to use this sort of analogy of, um, of if I were to ask 10 people in a room to draw a cat, They'd all draw a cat, but it'd be slightly different. So brocks are basically the same thing. They are kind of variations on a theme. They're all circular. They have two walls. They're dry stone. And when I say that, when I mean that they are built without the likes of mortar or cement. So they're just stones placed on top of each other. A bit like Lego, if you like. These circular structures kind of, they batter inwards in terms of their shape. So if you can think of the, um, if you think of the Simpsons, where Homer works, those uh, nuclear kind of towers. They're a bit shaped like that. That's the best way to describe them. And as you enter the brock, there is an entrance in the front. You might find at your right-hand side, there is a kind of cell built within the walls. And this is a corbelled cell where the, the stones kind of overlap one another, forming a kind of beehive shape. Uh, you'll find, you know, might find two or three of these cells in the brock structure. And then if you look to, if you kind of look to your left, you might find that there's a set of stairs running through the structure as well. So this would suggest that the buildings were multi-storied. So we're talking about kind of skyscrapers back in, you know, back in 2000 years ago. And we also suspect that they were multi-storied because there's evidence of what's known as a scarcement ledge. Now that's essentially just a ledge, a ledge of stones which juts out, kind of protruding inwards, if you like. And this would have been used potentially to support a floor, which is, again, it's just fantastic to think that people were living on 
you know, multi-storey constructions uh, in the Iron Age. There's more intriguing elements of brocks as well, such as voids, which run sometimes from the bottom of the brock to the top. Um, it's not known what these are for. These are essentially just gaps in the brock structure, in the inner wall. We really don't know what these were used for. Um, it may have been some sort of chimney, if you like, which could have then helped to heat up. The, the Brock structure, there is some science behind that, but I am by no means qualified to talk my way through that, I'm afraid. Or we, we don't really know. It could have been a kind of structural kind of composition type thing. It could have been an engineering part, maybe to lighten the loads at kind of areas where the Brock was deemed weak. So the people who built these structures were, they knew what they were doing. And these are really complex and just totally fascinating buildings that are quite difficult to, to pin down what a brock is. And as I say, most brocks kind of follow that general theme, which I just described, circular, two walls. But some have kind of different sized entrances, some maybe slightly squatter, like a thicker walls. Some have triangular lintels over the entrances as well. So it's a kind of just a fancy doorway, if you like. We don't know if they were all multi-storied. We don't know if some of them stood the test of time. We don't know, you know, for instance, how the interior may have looked because the archaeology just isn't there anymore. If it was made from the likes of wood or perhaps reed and wattle and daub, things like that, then these things generally don't or aren't preserved in the archaeological record. So it's difficult to understand what went on inside. And the other big question in, in Brock archaeology is, you know, were these things roofed? I would say, having spent many years living in, in Scotland, I would definitely not want to live in an unroofed structure. So I would posit that they were roofed, but what form that roof took is difficult to, to pin down. It could have been reeds, thrushes, a kind of thatched roof type structure. It could have been, perhaps, it could have been slates of some description. I know that um, Neil Ackerman, uh, who also works in Orkney, he has done sort of investigation into Neolithic houses, which appear to have been slated. So... They're all quite similar to a, to a certain degree, but they definitely differ uh, brock to brock. And the atypical brock musa, um, whilst very resplendent and looks absolutely fantastic, I think it's Noel Fogert who says that musa is a brock, but not every brock is a musa. So there's variations in terms of brock archaeology and what constitutes a brock and what doesn't. And I think a lot of it stems from the this tradition of dry stone diking, which began thousands and thousands of years ago in the Neolithic age, where, when people started to build kind of these great chamber cairns where, where um, relatives and ancestors were essentially, their bones were deposited for safekeeping or for spiritual reasons. We don't really know why. But this kind of tradition of dry stone diking carries on right through until we start seeing huts being built, not only from kind of just simple posts in the ground, but then they start adding stones in a kind of circular fashion and then these houses get thicker and then they start to incorporate more features such as the stairwells such as the corbelled cells and you know we, we start to see things like crosskirk which is a brock in Caithness which for reasons unknown to me was um, was bulldozed off the edge of a cliff because I think it was seen as a, a dangerous kind of site if people were to visit it but it still seems like a tragic waste of a brock if you ask me but that, that's kind of viewed as one of the earliest brocks because it has this stairway running running through the structure it has kind of stone partitioning furniture if you like within the rock structure it has evidence of cells things like that but prior to crosskirk there were structures such as how brock brock with quotation marks in orkney which is this kind of oblong shape not quite a square not quite a circle um with really thick walls um, and I think it's got maybe a cell incorporated into it somewhere as well and so at this point it's very it's just very difficult to 
understand or delineate what makes a broth and what doesn't. It's a complicated topic, actually. I feel like generally it would be sort of a more round structure than a square structure. It seems like that was sort of a more typical... Broths are absolutely, they're, they're circular in shape. I think what's common in most broths is that they have these two walls and a stairwell running through. And generally speaking, these were kind of monumental structures. These were big, imposing, impressive, awesome structures too. So they have to be of a certain size to qualify for that kind of broch name, if you like. It almost feels like the tower of a castle without the castle, right? <laughs> yeah, it's often described as a kind of proto-castle just given the sheer size and monumentality of these brocks. And they're kind of multifunction as well, multifaceted constructions. We don't really know if they were used as dwellings, if they were, I mean, some people have posited that they may have been kind of factories of some description as well. At Clack Tallbrock, there's an ongoing excavation that may have stopped now, I think. Um, but over the, certainly over the last couple of years, they've been excavating this brock, which had collapsed inwards at some point. In history, I think actually what happened is about 2,000 years ago, there was a, a fire and this eventually ran out and the place just collapsed in on itself. That's left a kind of wonderful state of preservation. But at Clack Tall, there's a huge number of quernstones, instruments which were used, kind of just two, essentially two flat kind of circular shaped stones, one on top of the other, which was used to process grain, basically, or barley. They split them up so that they could be turned into you know, bread, things like that. There's about 12 of them, as far as I can remember, that have been recovered from the site. And that's just quite a phenomenal number, really. Uh, and whether that was just kind of the, I should say, the, the lower portion of the brock, the first floor, or the ground floor, if you like, they were undertaking kind of industrial activities or perhaps, you know, animal husbandry or who knows, something rigorous and kind of robust like that. And perhaps in the second floor, people were weaving or maybe that's where people slept. We, we don't really have the archaeology to go on that. But it is interesting to think that you know, these weren't just homes or they might not just have been homes, they could have been centres of activity themselves. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know how you're saying maybe the middle has like a fire? It almost makes me think like a smoke shack. You, you have meats and stuff and you prepare your meats and you keep them away from other animals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a really good illustration, a type in Brock illustration you'll get it. I can't quite remember who did it, but I think it is actually of Don Carloway where they're kind of hanging fish from the, from the rafters, if you like, or from around a circular um, scaffold, and they just hang fish from there. And it would make sense. I mean, if you've got to utilise space, then if you eat fish and you like your fish smoked, then you've got to smoke them somehow, so why not use the hearth? So, I mean, these are all just theories that we can't really prove. But I suppose when we come to build our broth, you will kind of find out a bit more about what works and what doesn't work. So if we're looking at brochs, they're all over Scotland, as you've said, in the, like the north and the outer edges and the isles. Mm -hmm. Do we see a commonality in the types of stones or are they using more the local quarries that they have? They are using the local quarries as far as I know. In Caithness, for instance, we'll be using the Caithness flagstone, which was famous the world over. Um, it's easily split into kind of chunks, if you like and is perfect for building material, for dry stone diking, for laying stones on top of each other, basically. They're not using like one quarry for all the brocks in, in Scotland. It's, I suppose, very different to the likes of, say, Stonehenge, where you've got a quarry many, many miles away being used for this particular um, structure. And with brocks, it's much more of a case of just using what you've got. And I suppose that in some way that answers why Caithness has so many brocks, is the fact that stone was such a prevalent building material, given that trees were not so, um, didn't really flourish in Caithness, being that it's too flat and it's too windy. So trees 
inevitably don't really grow there so well, as well as the kind of peak conditions. And if you have a lot of people there using the wood, then there's not going to be a lot of it. So what they turn to instead is is using stone. You know, that's perhaps the reason why Caithness has such a rich legacy of rocks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and do we have evidence or do we understand a little bit of the type of people that went through the brochs? Yeah, um, I think there's plenty of evidence for reuse, um, but we'll talk about the people who were you know, built and inhabited these um, brochs and have a kind of zenith. Um, these were just known as the, the Iron Age peoples of Scotland, um, if we can call it Scotland at that time. And there's plenty of evidence, and I guess the evidence from the Brock structures as well allows us to kind of at least suggest that these were used as dwellings, as houses. We don't know if it was maybe a house for one person or if it was for accommodating several families, but there certainly is kind of the the day-to-day controls that you might find in your own house. You know, you'll find things for making clothes, for weaving, um, for making foods, you'll go find things such, such as the back Clactol where you find the, the quernstones. You know, this is all kind of evidence of people living and doing things in brochs, from cooking to making things. You find things like candle holders or, or what's thought to be candle holders. Again, I think that's been found at Clactol, but also in the cairns. And you find a lot of um, things that are more difficult to define and might give you an idea or might sort of just hint at ideas of belief and perhaps social lives and spirituality, things like that. We find things like, certainly in Caithness, and uh, two brochs in Caithness, and three brochs in Caithness, uh, Keese, Kirktofts, and uh, Whitegate Broch, we found these painted pebbles. And they're exactly as they sound. They are just these kind of beach pebbles, which have been painted with um, quite striking designs, kind of spotted or, or kind of wavy designs as well. They're really quite beautiful. We, we don't know what they were for. They're a bit like these carved stone balls that you might see as well. But essentially, their meaning and their use and everything about them is, has just been lost to time. But they were, they're found there, so they had a use and a, a meaning for the people who lived there. Um, we also find things like um, at the Pap, I think, it was at Hillhead, so at Hillhead Brock uh, near Wick, they found evidence of what looks, again, might have been some sort of medical procedure, uh, which was trepanning which is drilling holes into people's heads so there's a fragment of a skull with a hole bored into it or three holes bored into it sorry um we don't know what that was for if that was medical again if that was spiritual if there was you know perhaps this man had demons inside him for all we know or was thought to have demons inside him and this was a way of exercising them out or if he had a really bad headache then maybe that was a a way of dealing with it i would suggest boring a hole into your skull is not going to relieve you of that headache mind you but there's lots of things found in brochs which give a really intricate picture of day-to-day life through the ages. I could go on and talk about, say, the cairns and the amount of kind of metalworking implements that they find in their casts for brooches. But there's just there's so much to talk about the inhabitants. But there's certainly a kind of rich legacy that they've left behind. And in terms of reuse, they, they are reused from, as far as I'm aware, immediately after they're kind of disbanded. And in a lot of cases, a lot of brocks are, if you like, mutilated and their shape changes and they become kind of outer buildings form around them as well. But certainly I'm aware of some brocks being used um, right up until to the Viking Age, perhaps not as houses, but as perhaps as kind of places of, of ceremonial importance. I was speaking to you earlier about Thingsvabroch in Caithness which with a name like Thingsva would suggest it was reused by the Vikings as a thing site. And thing sites are essentially 
assembly fields or if you like Viking Parliament almost. So it'd be really interesting to see, you know, if um, there's any kind of archaeological evidence for the for their reuse. But with a name like Thingsva, it would certainly suggest that that the that the Norse saw these sites as kind of important places to be reused. And in a sense, knowing that these these Brock sites or what remained of them were probably important to the ancestors of the Brock builders. They were probably viewed with perhaps with some superstition. In many ways, they resembled chambered cairn sites as well, which because you're burying dead people at chambered cairn sites, they will obviously carry that kind of supernatural, spooky kind of aura with them too. So by reusing them uh, as a kind of Viking parliament, the Vikings were asserting their control over the area by you know, really utilising these, these areas and these, these structures or what remained of them. So you've mentioned quite a few different things that we've found and that we've noticed. When we look at Brox, how has the archaeology or the process of finding these things out, like we just started, let's say, digging up, as you mentioned, in the 1800s, late 1800s. And what kind of technology are we using now? You know, how has that changed? Well, I think the great leap for archaeology came with radiocarbon dating, uh, which is a complicated scientific process. Again, I don't think I would do any justice in trying to explain, but essentially allows us to date organic materials by burning it, and it gives off a carbon kind of number, which can then be traced to a certain period. Um, that has been crucial to understanding, you know, when these blocks were built. So previously, you know, we thought that they may have been picked houses. And if you look at an old map of Scotland, you may see a, you know, picked house. Um, which is more than likely the remnants of an old brock. But we now know that brocks were much older, um, so dating to perhaps up to 400 BC, again, depending on your on your definition of a brock. So again, it's this kind of science, it's a lot more a scientific process. New archaeology, I think, back or processual archaeology, as it was called many years ago. But there's various kind of scientific processes and analysis that you can use to help with the understanding of a Brock structure or, or the people who, who use them. So isotope analysis as well is another one which allows people to kind of, kind of positively date and understand, for instance, even the diet of some people. There's a really notable example of isotope analysis being used for another Caithness archaeological kind of project called the Akavanic Beaker Burial Project, about a Bronze Age woman who was found in a cast burial. And so here they're using isotope analysis and strontium analysis to, to understand more about where this person came from and kind of what she ate and, and how she lived. So the science of archaeology has really helped to understand brocks more. And there are other processes as well involved in archaeology and, and understanding brocks. So uh, LIDAR, for instance, or geophysics, they help us to identify structures below the ground without even having to put up. A spade into the earth and these are really important in just kind of understanding the landscape and kind of identifying rock structures and where we might expect to find them so it's you know far removed from the trespari days of of digging down as deep as you can as quick as you can in the hope of finding something interesting and how did you get interested in brocks well I, I don't really know how i got interested in brocks per se i think i've always been interested in in archaeology and history and things like that um my dad would take me around historical sites as a bairn and I'd, I've got one photograph of me and Scarra Bray wearing an England rugby top for some strange reason. I'm not sure, that seems very cruel, a cruel prank to play on a young Scottish lad. But I, I was certainly always aware of the kind of, of archaeology of Caithness. In 2013, myself and Ian McLean 
we kind of knew that there was, you know, there's fantastic archaeological sites in the area, but they just weren't being utilised. They weren't being promoted to the extent that we, we thought they could be. And this was the same time as Dunry, which is the local nuclear power plant in the area, was starting to, or had for many years, um, to be fair, it was going through a process of, and still is, going through a process of decommissioning. So it was one of the first kind of uh, fast reactors or nuclear reactors in the UK. It was built in, sometime in the 1950s. But it served its purpose and it's now being taken apart, essentially. And with that, unfortunately, it's going to take with it a lot of jobs. The population of Caithness is somewhere around 20,000, and I think Dunry employs around about 2,000. So it's really it's really crucial to the area, in fact. Now, with the downturn of Dunry, that's going to see a, a decrease in population. Uh, Caithness is predicted to lose about 20% of its population in the next 20 years, which is frankly an astonishing and frightening number for anywhere to lose. You know, if you can imagine, say, for instance, if Toronto was predicted to lose 20% of its population, there'd be uproar. You know, it would just be seen as a, as a real kind of scandal almost or a real problem. So this is what Caithness is facing at the moment. And so myself and Ian have looked at the likes of, say, Orkney, which has thousands of tourists step onto its shores every year. As a great example, in 2015, when I worked there, 12 cruise ships visited Caithness. In Orkney, it was about 150 cruise ships, which is an astonishing number. Obviously, this comes with its own problems, but what's clear is Orkney does benefit from its heritage tourism. It makes something like, I want to say, £36 million from tourism every year. It's a fantastic number. And these tourists aren't going to stop anytime soon, and hopefully not with the with the current situation. Um, so we believe that Caithness... It's just not promoting itself as well as it should be. And it has such a vast, rich archaeological landscape anyway that it's in the perfect position to promote itself. So myself and Ian got together. We realised that we both had an interest in archaeology and we kind of understood that Caithness had more brochs than anywhere else in Scotland and for the world for that matter. And so we thought that this would be a great kind of totem, if you like, for Caithness, a great icon for Caithness and would serve to draw people in to the area. And we thought, well, let's let's actually give them something really worth, you know, unmissable, something iconic that you've got to see, a world-class attraction. We thought, why not build a, why not build a brock? <laughs> so that's what we're trying to do. And it's been a slow process um, from 2013, from, from just a Facebook page talking about brocks, talking about archaeology of Caithness, to you know, setting up an archaeological charity to a membership scheme to the various projects that we've done throughout the years, all in the hope of kind of encouraging interest and awareness of the archaeology of the region, not to just tourists or potential tourists, but to, to the local community too, so that they feel part of it and they feel that they have a, a kind of identity, if you like, which can be attached to Brock's. Um, we've kind of been taking a step-by-step procedure to get to even a kind of starting position of, of building this brook because we're still a long way off, unfortunately, but it's, a, it's, you know, it's something that's not been done in 2,000 years and unfortunately now has kind of 2,000 years of kind of bureaucracy and um, uh, restrictions and limitations placed upon it now as well. I don't think the Iron Age builders would have had so much red tape around building a brook as we do now. So it's a, it's a very slow, staggered process, but we are making quite good process. 
And you've mentioned that there's cairns also near the broths. So I guess what other types of things could people expect to see in Caithness if they do end up visiting? Well, if they do end up visiting, that would be fantastic. And I'm sure they wouldn't be disappointed because it, it's probably not what they're going to expect, actually. It's, it's very, it's very un-Scottish in many ways. And I would say that it's uncompromisingly beautiful. It's very flat. But in my own opinion, that, that doesn't really unduly bother me because the coastal scenery is, is just magnificent. Um, so you might expect to see ge- geological wonders such as the stacks of Duncan's Bay, these huge, um, essentially, stacks of, of rock in the water. Uh, always a tourist favourite. And nearby to these places as well, you get to see the puffins, which delight and amuse people to no end. And they, I still love seeing them as well. They're absolutely brilliant wee things. Um, there's also a huge array of castles as well. Some of the best castles in Scotland, in my own opinion. And just really Instagram-worthy shots at these places. Uh, Keith's Castle, Sinclair Garnagle Castle, Pacoli Castle, Thurzo Castle. And even kind of more, um, if you like, visitor-friendly castles, such as the Castle of May, which was frequented by um, the Queen Mother and is still visited by Prince Charles every year. A fantastic place to visit. But there's there's so much to see and do in Caithness, whether you like whiskey, whether you like gin, whether you like great food and drink, fishing, whether you like coastal scenery, castles, you know, northern lights, wildlife. There's so much to see and do in Caithness, and I really would encourage anyone who's not been to go and uh, experience it for yourself. And you've mentioned a little bit about your project and how you want to build a broth. So what were the sort of all the aims of the project? Where do you see it go in the next 10 or even 20 years? Well, so the project to build a replica broch has always been the kind of mainstay of the, of the flagship of the project. And it has been ongoing, I guess, since 2013 when it was just an idea. And from there, we, for instance, in 2016, got a kind of preliminary business plan, which would suggest that by doing by building this it would be a successful venture because you've got to build something which is you know authentic and um, pleasing and, and still you know, archaeologically sound if you like but it has to be balanced out with the fact that this is being built for a reason and the reason is to shore up tourism in Caithness and to encourage people to come to Caithness and so you also have to balance that out with you know it's got to be a successful tourist venture so it's difficult balancing the two worlds of Iron Age authenticity and striking the, the tourist market as well. So we recently, um, kind of the, one of the biggest steps we took was a big call out for um, across Caithness for people who might be interested in in ourselves purchasing their land or um, even giving away the land in some instances, instances for the construction of this broch because where this broch is going to be built is the most crucial part of the project. We need to know where this where, where the best place to build the broch is, essentially. So we're, we're working with uh, two firms, Hoskins Architects and Jura Consultants, and they're putting together what's known as a project development brief. And this essentially allows gives us a framework with which to work with and helps us identify to you know where the best site to build the broch is. Um, they'll also be looking at feasibility around it, um, a kind of another business plan to shore it up and perhaps some, some early visuals of the Brock too. So once we have that, we will be in a better position to start fundraising for the actual project once we kind of identified how much money we, we might need to raise to purchase land and to build the Brock. And this could be a multi-million pound project, which is a big, you know, it's, that's quite a big thing to do. So we do need to take our time with it. But we're hoping within the next two years, we will be kind of 
in a position to start fundraising. Once we've got the Brock built, we need to work with, say, the Highland Council and the Scottish Government to make sure that our Brock structure complies with all the kind of regulations that it needs to comply with. Um, so I would hope that in the next five years, we'll be in a, we, you know, we might have built the Brock by then. That would be incredibly exciting. And when you're talking about building the Brock, I'm guessing you're using sort of traditional ways to build it. As you said, there's no cement that's between the rocks, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, another kind of reason for building this block is not just the, it's not just for sort of tourist potential or kind of tourist visits, although that's probably and arguably the, the most important part of the project. Another part is to, is actually this, you know, becomes a huge experimental piece of archaeology and it helps us to understand how these blocks were built. We don't really know how they began to build these things. We have ideas, but we don't really know what's the easiest way, what's the quickest way, what's the best way, you know, what, which way makes the broch kind of strongest or a kind of strong structure. Did they use scaffolding? Did they, uh, how did they kind of use stone tools to kind of shape blocks? There's many questions that need to be asked by the construction of this broch. And we hope to do it as traditionally as possible. I think a really good, there's two really good examples that we can think of where kind of traditional um, experimental archaeology has been used. One is Guédelong Castle in France, which is an astounding project. If anyone go to Google and just have a look at what they're doing over there, it's it's mad. Uh, it's essentially the reconstruction of a kind of 13th century castle done with, with all the kind of tools and even the clothes and uh, in the style that they would have done 700 years ago. And closer to home, there's the Scottish Cranach Centre as well. Uh, that's another fantastic project, one that we, we, we really love to talk about. Uh, essentially, this was done as a piece of experimental archaeology, I think, in the early 90s, late 80s, um, whereby they built this, a dwelling that's based on water called a cranog. It's essentially a roundhouse on stilts, if you like. And that was done through using experimental archaeology methods as well to better understand how these things were constructed and why they were constructed as well. And after they constructed it, they turned it into a kind of tourist attraction in its own right. And uh, I would re th thoroughly recommend anyone uh, checks those two projects out to get a better idea of how we're going to do our, our own project and, and why we're doing um, this as well. I was just going to say that I wish I had heard about this a long time ago. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's people in case who haven't heard of this project. So that always grinds my gears whenever I hear people go, oh, no, I've never heard of the Caithness Brock project. And, you know, we've been on the television, we've been on papers, we've been on radio, you know, national television, you know, on like primetime television shows, and people haven't heard of us. But that's archaeology. It's going to interest some people and it's not going to interest others. And as fun and cool as I think I am on Twitter, it's still archaeology. And it's still sometimes incredibly difficult to um, engage with people who just aren't interested, you know? Or they don't know that they'd be interested. Well, that's it. I think, as, as one of the volunteers said, you can only care about something that you know about. So that's part of the battle, is just making them away, aware of it. And if you wanted to we could talk about, you know, how we kind of maybe approached that, because it started as a, as a Facebook page, because that's a cheap, easy, quick means of, of communicating your message to anyone. And, you know, we use other social media like, like Twitter and Instagram. 
Um, but we had no real idea as, as to how interested people were about this project. But, you know, doing kind of talks and uh, outreach events, things like that. One of our first projects, if you like, was raising some money to um, install some interpretation panels at three Brock sites, which didn't have any interpretation. So when visitors went there, there was nothing to tell them what these things were. So we thought, okay, this is a good first idea, which will, you know, essentially enable us to start a, a kind of portfolio of successful projects because we'd love to just get a million pounds from funding bodies, but they need to see that you are, you know, resilient, that you are resourceful, that you are trustworthy and that you can manage such massive, you know, even small projects. And so the first project, we, we basically had to do a kind of pitching competition for our idea. And, you know, as an archaeological group or an archaeological charity, there were this was kind of community events, so there were other charities, other groups there who were also kind of pleading for money. And, you know, we're talking age concern, kids' sports groups, disability groups, kind of medical groups as well, um, arts groups. And we thought, oh, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way we're going to win any money here. And actually, at that, we got all the money that we needed, and we actually got 80% of the vote. So I think our project really means a lot to, to people in Caithness, and I think they're well aware of the kind of issues that hamper the region, whether that just be kind of rural isolation to the kind of prospect of such a significant loss of jobs through Dunry. So that was a really, you know, that was a really buoying kind of kind of first step into doing projects and doing events in the region. And since then, we've done lots of things. We've done archaeological digs at three Brock sites across the county, which I think about 150 people took part in over the course of kind of three weeks. Um, we in 2017 we also had a Lego Brock made, which was a uh, ten thousand pieces. I believe I didn't I didn't count them all, but I was told there was ten thousand pieces. This was made by a team called Bricked the Past, who are really great. They do Hadrian's Wall. They do kind of London in the 19th century. They've done Culloden, kind of battlefield and castles and things like that. Really fantastic. But we, they made this Brock as part of a it was called a Home of the Brock exhibition at Caithness Horizons, which was the then kind of museum for Caithness. And we, I think we got about 3,000 visitors through the door over the over summer, which was I was really pleased with. And we got lots of really great feedback, um, talking about the kind of exhibits and displays that we had there. Um, we did outreach events with, with children as well. So we encouraged them to, well, we basically took them from school um, to come in and look at the Lego Brock. And then we challenged them to build um, the Lego Brock on Minecraft. And it was fantastic to see them like really learn and really understand the basic structure, the kind of basic components of a Brock. That's something like 800 children in a week. And one of the children said about the, the Lego Brock that this was the this is the best Lego Brock ever, or sorry, the best Lego Brock in the world. And my I thought that was a great piece of feedback until my friend pointed out that it was also the only Lego Brock in the world. So didn't feel so good about that after then but we've done lots we've done, i think we've spoken to over 100 community groups we've done as i say outreach events we've done lego brock done exhibitions and then that's kind of culminated in the last couple of years with our biggest project to date which is the conservation of an existing brock called ousdale burn brock or alta burg brock in gaelic it's probably caithness's best example of a brock and uh, we visited it in 2015 and we saw that it had kind of collapsed 
it was essentially excavated in 1891 and a buttress had been kind of constructed um, inside the brock to kind of, I guess, protect the structure. That buttress subsequently collapsed, even though it was only 200 years old. The rest of the 2,000-year-old structure is more or less standing, um, but it was in real danger of, you know, a few winters would see it kind of collapse. So we put together a funding package and with the help of um, SSE, Historic Environment Scotland, and the Caithness um, Leader, Highland Leader Fund, we were able to get funds together to conserve the broch and ensure that it's safe for people to visit it and also install um, a path down to the broch because it's quite difficult to get down there actually. It's quite a steep steep path to get there um, as well as create parking, signage and interpretation panels as well. So that was £180,000. So we've come a long way from was it 2015 when we did our interpretation panels, which I think were about, it was a £2,000 project. And we're now dealing with, with hundreds of thousands of pounds. And all of this really is an aid of the kind of the next big project, which is the reconstruction of the Brock itself. Yeah, that's, that's really incredible. You've come a very long way in a short time, actually. Yeah, no, it's, it's been quite a, it's been quite a journey and I think I've learned so much from it myself and kind of uh, personally and professionally. You know, I'm now studying archaeology at Glasgow University in my in my final year, and um, I was really flattered as well because I gave a talk at their winter seminar series for Glasgow University, and every other kind of person on that list was a doctor or a professor or a PhD student. Um, and there was me in my second year undergrad. <laughs> um, and I think I was the first person to do a talk in their undergrad at their, at their series. So I was, you know, I was delighted. But I know that this project is it's possibly like, you know, transformational for Caithness. It's really piqued the attention of people across the world. We have members from Bulgaria to Finland to Canada to America, Australia and and, and many other places and you know this means an awful lot to to Caithness as well and I, I really believe that it's what Caithness deserves so I think that you know once, once people come here and seeing a broch as it was 2000 years ago again a real vivid uh, living history experience is something that stays with you for for many years and I think through that you can teach them you know how people lived you know who these people were why they did these sort of things and I think by you know, really, really showing off with the construction of a replica brock is a great way to engage with people and give them an experience, like I say, that will, will last and kind of live with them for a long, long time. So is there going to be a small museum to go with the brock? Is that sort of in the plans to help people understand a little better? Well, yeah, that's, that's something we've been looking at. Now, that's part of the kind of project development brief, which I mentioned we were working with some consultants to to develop because we don't know what is the how are we going to do it and what is the best way of going about it should we have a museum should should it just be a brock and maybe a little a little hut to encourage people like a admission stall if you like or should we have like a really beautiful kind of innovative maybe architecturally beautiful visitor center in itself you know i think a project of this scale and this scope probably does deserve equally beautiful and complex visitor centre, such as, you know, the uh, the Culloden battlefield experience, for example, I think is a real fantastic example of a way that historic site can meld in with something new and something important. And so we may, we might have, um, we might have a visitor centre there. 
in all likelihood we will and you know hopefully it will become as much of the experience as the broth visit itself too Thank you so much, Kenneth. This was fantastic to hear you speak about Brachs in general and then your actual project. And I really hope to visit it someday. I'm really excited to go visit Caithness now. <laughs> oh, please do, yeah. And all the, the whiskey distilleries, gin distilleries, and they're all waiting to be visited. And of course, so our Broch will be ready by that point. Um, even if you can't make it, then please do you know continue to follow us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and and our website and i should also mention that people can help support us from from even in canada they can support us for completely free as well um they can become a friend of the project so you just need to go to our website www.thebrockproject.co.uk um sign up as a friend it takes 30 seconds and you get a, a nice newsletter out of it every now and then um and we do appreciate everyone who signs up but no thank you very much for inviting me to to talk today all the best to you thank you was very educational and yet very entertaining. Thank you so much, Kenneth. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and record this on the podcast. And Kenneth had two book recommendations today, Towers of the North by Ian Armit and Caithness Archaeology, Aspects of Prehistory by Andy Held and John Barber. And of course, that will be in the show notes. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at History you can come to the website, historya.com. And if you get a chance to rate this podcast on your podcasting platform of choice, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find me. So thank you. I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and all of the teachers who helped me adventure through history. Un grand merci.